open source is the term is actually relatively new. It was like in the mid '90s that the word, those two words, collided together to talk about how the underpants of a technical service, the code to it, should be accessible to sniff out, to interrogate. I don't want to sniff underpant code, but I want to. <laughs> uh, but I. But the idea is that just like an open science right which yep. has been around for millennia that you are able to see why something works how something works if you're interested in it and engineers and designers and uh, clinicians and etc some of us have a desirement to know how these things work mm -hmm. what the biases are how do i make this better and that's the sort of the key idea of open is the code the design the vectors that move this product, this service, this thing, are interrogatable. Hello, I'm Rob Puglisi, the producer for Design Lab. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Bon is currently on vacation in Maine eating lobster, so he asked me to introduce this week's episode. On today's show, we are joined by Yuhan Sonin. And let me tell you, after listening to this episode, we need a lot more people with Yuhan's energy in the world of healthcare. He's got a rare vibe and candor that is hard to come by. Yuhan specializes in healthcare design and system engineering. He's the director of GoInvo, which you can find at GoInvo.com. This studio's designs have helped 700,000 Massachusetts residents receive food benefits. They're used by Wikipedia to explain complex health concepts and they help manage care plans for 150 million U.S. residents. His work has been recognized by the New York Times, Newsweek, BBC International, Wired Magazine, and NPR, and he's published in the Journal of Participatory Medicine and The Lancet. Yuhan has spent time at Apple, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and MITRE. He currently lectures on design and engineering at MIT. Yuhan's laser focus on healthcare and open source design has affected national efforts for the United States Department of Health and Human Services, to the National Institutes of Health, to the California Healthcare Foundation. His open source healthcare products have also been leveraged by Walgreens, Crossover Health, and Hallmark Clinics, to name a few. Next up in 2021, they're working to lead an open source national push for patients to own their own data. Bon and Yuhan talk about open source healthcare, the need for a longitudinal health record for patients, and why Yuhan shared his own genome publicly. Remember, you as a listener can support this show by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us five stars. Leave a comment and follow us on whatever platform you use to consume podcasts. We love it, and I do mean we love it, when we hear from you on social media. Now sit back and enjoy the conversation with Bon and Yuhan Sonin. Yuhan Sonin, thank you for coming to Design Lab. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a really long time. So doing some research on you, I saw a video where you said that you open source your entire genome. Why did you do that? Well in a fit of stupidity, 
um, in a fever dream, you know, I said, okay, maybe I should do this to figure out what it is to have your data open. And it also allowed me to use my data to design things for me, for other humans. It's rare. It's, it's Here's something stupid is that how many times have designers, engineers seen a real record, medical record of a human being? And it's amazing. I would say it's single digits. I'm totally making this up. I I agree. I I know chief engineers who have architected the fire record, uh, a fire uh, schema, who it took them 10 years into the actual process of developing the spec to see a real goddamn record, Mm. like what it looks like in ones and zeros. And then they're like, now now explain what's fire because, you know, some people were like, what the heck's fire? Well, it's a it's schema that represents or that represents people in code, hmm. right? And it's a way for us as entities, as hospital systems, as services on your phone to have some kind of data schema that you can read, that different services can read. Mm-hmm. It's you know the whole, whole idea of interoperable record, mm-hmm. but it is a schema that, that has data element definition. So what's your blood pressure? And so there's a common human and computable readable uh, data element definition. And that fire is uh, a big global effort around that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it was, that's where was it going? It was why did I open source it? I think there are a number of reasons, uh, which I just mentioned a couple. And I think it's just for me, a good practice to live what I do. Mm. Now, I don't expect anyone in their right mind to do that. I just don't think it's a good exercise. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> I, I am not going to do that, by the way. So I was good. impressed that you did that. that no, no, no. It, it, it's Again, it's not exactly a smart idea, but there's no f- federal national law that criminalizes the pejorative use of our health data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why someone could go snack that and, you know, do devious things uh, about my employment or whatever it is in the future if I get whatever it is. So I think there are serious problems in doing it. I did it just for the exercise of what is it? Why would I want to do this? And I lived it. It sort of lived experience a bit. Mm. You wrote this manifesto called open source healthcare. I I love it. I'm going to share the link to that at the end of our conversation. I think everyone listening should read that. And I want to read a little bit of what you say, you said, here's a direct quote from that. Here in the US, healthcare is sometimes amazing, often life-saving, always expensive, and mostly closed. Can you talk about you know, what is the origins of open source and why you wrote this manifesto? Well, open source is, the, the term is actually relatively new. It's like in the mid-90s that the word, those two words <laughs> glided together to talk about how the underpants of a technical service, the code to it should be accessible to sniff out, to interrogate. I don't want to sniff underpant code, but I want to, <laughs> uh, but I, but the idea is that just like an open science, right. Which yep. has been around for millennia that you are able to see why something works, how something works. If you're interested in it, and engineers and designers and uh, clinicians and et cetera, some of us have a desirement to know how these things work, mm-hmm. what the biases are, how do I make this better? And that's the sort of the key idea of open is the code, the design, the vectors that move this product, this service, this thing are interrogatable. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean 
that, you know, there's this thing where just because something is open doesn't mean everyone and anyone can change it. Uh-huh. Right. And so that's the one of the first things people say is, well, then anyone can, you know, can manipulate the code. Right. Or manipulate it. Well, you can do it on your own time and your own computer and <laughs> your own service if you do that. Yeah. But to the, the thing that works, like, you know, like Linux, you are not like just willy nilly throwing in code everywhere. There's a whole mm-hmm. process of reputation of is it good enough, you know, to push back into the public service of that. And can you give a short summary of open source healthcare? Like what, what, what does that mean? Well, that's a woolly topic and has many different definitions. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is that in open source, you have the thing itself, the, the credo of the transparency of what happens in the code. Mm-hmm. The second part is usually you have some license, right, that dictates how you can use it how companies can use it, if it's a business-friendly license, how, if it's more viral, whatever it is. So there's some license that dictates how it can be used. And then there's the third part, which is the, it takes people, it takes community to give feedback, to look at it, to evolve it, to, to move it. And so those are usually the three parts of open source. Mm-hmm. And then the healthcare specific ones, it's really about the, for me, about infrastructure of healthcare that should be open source. The things that we use all the time that are really the underpinnings of health or maybe the R and D, right? The way far out stuff should be, is usually open. That's an open science. You know, you, you see mm-hmm. that all the time. And then now you're seeing it with the small and consequential thing called, you know, COVID where all sorts of definitions, data definitions and research and ideas have been open sourced in order for the world to solve this together. Because right now, things are closed, right? Patient data is held in these black boxes across the US healthcare system and patients are producing the data, but that data is confined within these kind of closed systems. And why is that? Well, why do you think, Bon? <laughs> it's uh, follow the money. I, yeah, I usually do. <laughs> follow the damn money. It's always right in, in our country. It has been for a long time profits over people. Mm. And that's just a, a pandemic unto itself. I don't care whether it's healthcare or public service, you know, public services, yeah. you name it. And this is, that is driving me batshit. And when a PBM director espouses that they care plan for half the U.S., oh, that means that you have 135 million records sitting in your data lake somewhere and care planning for me. Great. That doesn't make me feel very good. <laughs> now, but, what, what, but there's this argument that gets put up by the industry of like, well, we're doing this to, for protecting patient privacy. So we can't like- Really? open sources or make it available. So what, okay, well, how do you things. respond to that? There are a couple there. Okay. So let me be clear is this is not about advocating for open source or open data of my data on the everywhere. That's not what I'm advocating. So I want to make that very clear. What I mm-hmm. did in putting my stuff on GitHub is ridiculous, <laughs> but cool for me, <laughs> but it shouldn't, that I'm not advocating for humans. It is the idea that we should really co-own or own our data So that we have and rerun, if we want to, our and have access to and push 
our longitudinal health record. That is really the one of the major Achilles heels of healthcare right now is there is no longitudinal health record for patients. Yeah. And you probably see this every freaking day. All, all the time. And I, every day where a patient touches so many different systems, I'm like, oh, can I get your consent so I could fax over this form to that other health system that is not within my network to get your medical records? Is fax. crazy. Think about that. You don't have, do you have a fax machine in your office? No. <laughs> <laughs> Nick so Negroponte you- killed it. He thought it was dead in 1994. Remember, that was a seminal, really good book, Being Digital. I think it came out in 94. And he had a whole chapter on the death of the fax machine. What is it? 2021? Yeah, he's not in the healthcare, though. <laughs> <laughs> he's in a different kind of money problem at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> You, you've talked about how healthcare is episodic, and that's one of the major problems with healthcare now. And I want to touch upon something you said. We need oh, something touch that's it, on, touch it. longitudinal. So what is that? Can you explain the difference? Like the way the current system is now is episodic, and but we need something that's more longitudinal. And can current technology or digital tools help us achieve that? Eventually, sure. That's what's going to really help us. I mean, there's going to be, this is from, it's a huge problem, Bond. Come on, you know this. A massive problem. It's a clusterfuck. That's a technical term. (laughs) And I I know it, but I don't know if the listeners know it. So uh, we can go into detail. That's the Bond After Dark podcast. (laughs) But there's got to be so many different attacks on this. A couple, maybe. One that, you know, I still am pretty big on much different kind of policy at the national level for patient ownership mm. of their record. And so my, my, my treatise is that there probably has to be like four different variances of that. If we were to put it in like the, an act or bill HR 666, you know, at the Senate there is that, you know, patients co-own or fully own every health data point about me right? But then when you and I, you're my doctor, God forbid, uh, you never <laughs> want me as a patient, generated something together, then we'd co-own it, mm. right? Both parties would co-own it. But anything that I do myself as part of that longitudinal health record, I fully own it. I can possess it. I can share it. I can mm. sell it. I can destroy it. Yeah, it's scary, but you can. That's ownership, you know, tenants. Mm. And lastly, there's this, you know, just to make sure we double up on the second point of co-ownership with a clinician or hospital system is all the uses of my health data should be consented in advance by the patient other than uses required by law. Because there's some things when you walk in with a a certain kind of communicable issue, you have to report that right by law. So those are like the, the, for me, the principles that underpin how we can start to get here, but there are not tricky little ways we could probably slide in there. Like CMS's rule out of, you know, last July, that's now finally in the patient interoperability rule. I forgot the name of it, the the formal name of it. It now starts to allow third parties. Now this could be scary because we're like people, people may not want third parties to touch their data, but it allows third parties to come in and snack on it based on what I want as a patient. Hmm. Right. So if it's working in my interest, if it's the fiduciary, right, then I think we get into a different ballgame 
where there's legalese around how little services do it on my behalf, I think we get somewhere more interesting. And all of a sudden, we can start to collect my data at a different velocity mm. from different places. We're not, we're not there yet, but that's, I'm looking at the, what are the small steps to get there and what are the big sort of policy steps we need to get there. Now, you run a design studio called Go Invo, and tell me about what that studio does and how it started. It's, it's an unusual mission for your company. What, to survive? <laughs> <laughs> to pay people appropriately to do interesting work? I mean, shit, everyone should be doing that. Knock on not, not everyone in healthcare. Okay, true enough. But I don't think we're doing anything particularly... Novel. Oh, give yourself uh, credit. I it, it, it feels different when I've obviously I'm a fan of your work, but it. I think even my mom. D, I, I think your D. I think your DNA is different in your company. Okay, well, maybe part of it is we try to do as much open source as we can. And we may have weird definitions of open source, but we have to also, that means open source, we invest in open source healthcare. Mm -hmm. So our measly profits, we put right back into open source. So into open source projects, into publishing open source, into building things that are open source in the healthcare world. And so I would say about 20% of our total income, uh, we put back into our own open source healthcare projects. And so, and that's not enough. (laughs) I'm not doing enough. 20% is pretty freaking amazing, dude. (laughs) If you're doing a couple million a year, maybe that's 350, 400, you know, 400K that you put right back into it. Why do you do that? Why don't you just pay yourself more? Well, that sure. That'd be great. Well, okay, sure. (laughs) We could do better on everybody's salary, but hopefully, you know, there's like a, you know, that the, you're employing some ideas about, well, I shouldn't be making X more than any other employee in, in, or staff or colleague. By the way, Bond, we also practice open source inside the firewall. So everyone's salary is known. Wow. So when you come in, you know what I make. You know mm. what anyone else in the, the studio makes. You, everyone gets their own credit card because we're an adult. I mean, you should be able to spend on things that get your job done uh, and not have to ask for freaking permission. This idea, when you go to bigger companies, uh, you have to beg, you have to plead, you need to wear knee pads to go get like a hundred buck thing. (laughs) It's so freaking stupid. Anyways, and if someone asks for our finances, I just, I send them our, you know, here's our last six months. There, There should be nothing scary about it. But if you did that for Moderna, um, and looked at all the crap that big companies do when they get, you know, half a trillion dollars of taxpayer money. You know, their entire executive team was pumping out a million bucks a week out of the company. So uh, this is your profits over people line before. Yeah. So I'm just, I want to do the opposite of that <laughs> so that I never have to worry about the trust or truth model is that it's just out there and I can't BS it. Mm. And so I, I think that same thing has to play in healthcare as well, because there's just so much garbage that we're surrounded by. And the faster you can get to truth, the better. Now, tell me about some of these projects that your uh, studio undertakes. Like, h- how do you choose what space to work in? And you're mainly focused on the healthcare space. Is that correct? Only the uh, dominion of health. Yes. Now, 
well, before you answer my uh, question, like, how did you get into that? Because you're not a physician, you're not in the medical space, you haven't been trained in the medical space, right? And I'm trained in my self care, Bon. <laughs> a lot like, of self care. Like, like, no, seriously, talk about your journey. Yeah, because you have this winding path, right? You worked at Apple at one point, at MITRE and some other companies. You've um, worked at MIT and I think continued to teach there. And how the heck did you decide, okay, I want to start working and designing for health in the healthcare space? Well, again, not completely original is you have some healthcare encounter in your life, which happened, you know, middle-aged white guy, you know, so more of us need to uh, die. But in my <laughs> case, <laughs> I was having, a, I was feeling invincible in my early third, like I think at 30 or something like that. And uh, I just happened to go into these little nurses stations. that was pretty awesome at a company I was working for at the time where they have, you know, these little, it's like a very lightweight primary care station with a couple nurses. They do blood work right there. It's fantastic. More people need to do that. And I got a micro checkup and they got my cholesterol test back, like right there. It's like, you know, a two minute test. And the nurse came back astonished. I was a functioning human being and then read this massive cholesterol number just off the charts. And she's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, I forgot. I'm, I'm probably exaggerating. I think she was just more mortified. And I had no idea. I didn't have the probe in me as a designer, as an engineer to know what was happening. And that was the first of several like hits in the, in the nose to say, well, how is, what's my body doing? I had no insight into it. So that's what started. And it, it just so happened. Like I was on a, you know, salami binge over the past two weeks. <laughs> and so I was just like hoarding, you know, meat and I had no idea. And so that started it. And then all of a sudden that got us directly into, well, the data side. I know it's really dorky, but it's like, well, where's the data coming from? How is it working? And uh, there was that whole component to it. it. It wasn't a glorious like or interesting intro. It was just, I don't know how my body works very Yeah. Well. And you're a smart guy and you're like, I don't have data on my own body, on my on this machine that I live in. <laughs> this is hardly <laughs> a machine or like a blob, a gross blob. <laughs> Tell me the origin story. Then you said, okay, all, all of a sudden, I'm just going to start this company and start. Oh, no. Well, then it was six or seven years of pain of learning the healthcare system, but we got into it pretty quick. And this was at the MITRE Corporation, the open services department. So we were already sort of in the world of open source. And that got us into the earliest, this is before the ACA or anything like that came out. Massachusetts was just the canary in the coal mine for, for that whole legislation. And we were figuring out, okay, how do you start to do, how do you make sure that there is some, just like HTTP or TCP, right? These protocols that allow us to send emails to each other. What are the basic ways for us to send uh, good accurate and interesting, good data about ourselves in between systems, humans, and machines. Mm. And so the MITRE Corporation at the time, we were really interested in, okay, how do we start to think about a national problem set of how to solve it for the country? Mm. And that's what we, we got. So we did these, we were on, we had two parts of this dumbbell. One is the data side, but then if you can't tell the story of what you do with the data, 
the amazingness of, oh, wow, if it's rich, if it's absolutely like perfect and it comes right at the right time for when I'm thinking about it, for the clinician, for the patient, whoever it is, if you can't tell that story, it's hard to then justify alone the data interop side. Yeah. Right. And so we had two parts to that. Of course, the, as an engineering organization, you know, 82.6% of that budget went into the interop side, which is great. It, I learned a ton. But then my focus was okay, great. If we have to start getting to interop, what does it look like? What does the, what is the experience? And, mm. you know, I was late to it. I was, I think this is 2002 or something like that, 2003. Well, I don't think that's too late. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to go off and, to start a company on focusing in this space? Well, it's like the six or seven year itch. You know, what happens after that? You're like, okay, maybe I can do be even more crazy in my open sourceness. Because, you know, a lot of companies are, if they're big or even if they're small, are risk averse. Mm -hmm. As a species, we are too. Mm -hmm. I am too. But it's easier to take risks <laughs> when you're small and nimble and have less on the line. Now, I have to make sure that I can pay everybody in here, right? But at the same time, you know, my salary is, can be flexible and we can be a little more out there without a CEO or a board coming down on us. Now, who do you hire for your company? Do you hire people from a design background, a graphic design background, more, or like people more in computation, like software engineers, or like, how do you, how does someone go and work for your company? Like what sort of people are you looking for? Well, hopefully they're much smarter than us. And in my case, that's pretty easy. But then there's this. So that's the first thing is, oh my God, these people are going to kick our ass quick. Yeah, how can we hire them? Number one. And usually I think because healthcare is so screwy and so chaotic, but also complicated, it's hard now to hire someone who has zero healthcare experience, right? Mm -hmm. If they can't spell some of the basics, that's a learning curve in and, of, uh, in and of itself. Like when someone comes to your lab on how long does it take for them to go from zero to like 20% of, you know, seeing that it's a tough curve. It takes a lot to get there. Just learning like the basics of fire. And I'm no expert here, right? Or the protocol it probably takes someone three months for whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That's just one spec. And so here we are. And so it's hard for people, even here, even me to keep up. Mm. So the hope is that there's some healthcare background, whether, you know, bioengineering, whether it's, we've just recently found the Toronto, U, U Toronto School of uh, uh, Healthcare Communication and Design Department. There are lots of those now appearing. So I think as long as you find really uh, interesting, weird people, weird, interesting things will happen. It's pretty cool that, that there are more interesting weird people entering into this nerdy space of healthcare. Yes. And it's growing more and more. Are you, are you finding that too? Like, you know, you found this school at the University of Toronto because it seems like most of the smart, talented, cool people were going everywhere outside of the healthcare industry. Yeah. Well, the money's in healthcare, but there's also the ruse of uh, nobility with the profession. So <laughs> I'm such an asshole. It is a noble profession. I don't mean are, that. Are, to are sound you talking about the 1900s? <laughs> well, the, the, look, even, you know, what was the fame, the, the pretty well-known case about the forceps for clinicians in the 1800s, which were hidden 
as from you know, as a group in Europe that hid the practice of using forceps in giving birth. And uh, there's an ambulance coming to take me away right now. And this crew kept it hidden for 40 or 50 years. Wait, I why? I, I don't know this story. Be, uh, yeah, well, I'm just counting it from my measly memory, but that's a good question. They wanted to have a stranglehold on birthing kids. Hmm. And they literally did not tell this story for like, it could have been 75 years, forceps, basic forceps. Unbelievable. Stuff. So it's, I think it's a very human you know, trait, unfortunately, that we all have. But anyways, it is a noble profession. There's no question. It's just become a noble business. And that's why you're also seeing more and more people going into it because they can combine the two into one. Now, would you consider yourself uh, a designer? Like, how do you describe yourself? You have so many different talent and skill sets and such oh, a God. varied background and like, did you grow up as a kid going, hey, I want to be a designer? No. What? <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Hey, there are people that I interview on the show who have that background. Well, those are the lucky few. I mean, if you're a Mozart and at age five, you are just punching out amazing. You know what you want to be. Oh, my God. I, that's amazeballs. I was nowhere close to that. You know, the it depends how far back do we want to go in the lineage of the clan. Let's go. Let's go. Clan. Let's go far back, man. What, like Knights of the Sword? Do you want to go to the Vikings? You know, the pillaging of, you know, Estonia, my homeland. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I was fortunate enough to have my mommy was Juilliard trained artists and musician. All right. And my pops was uh, a professor in fluid mechanics. Uh, there's an easy joke in there, but I won't make it. So when in both of them, I went to school, I didn't know what I wanted, meaning uh, uh, university. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And of course, I sort of like defaulted to mechanical engineering and art. <laughs> I did both. You're an amalgamation of your parents. Eh? Well, that happens, you know, the gene pool sullies every generation. So <laughs> I, I had this experience when I walked in like the third day on campus in, in Champaign-Urbana. Okay. I know you're a Chicagoite, like it's like mostly Chicagoites who go to Champaign-Urbana. <laughs> so I walked into Professor White's office. He was a big deal at the time. And, you know, he worked at Saab or Porsche and all this stuff. So he was pretty revered. And I walked in and he looked and he's like, what are you doing art for? And I'm like, because it's interesting. I think I could, you know, potentially melt the two. I didn't say it like that. And he goes, no, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> so this was like the, the big head of the department talking to, you know, a 17 year old idiot. And I got ticked. I said, fuck that. Um, <laughs> and I never went back to him because like, who is he to say what I'm interested in? And that began my little micro uh, um, pitchfork journey to make sure that I could do both. Mm. And maybe that has sort of stuck with me as like, how do I vacillate or go between the two? And, you know, my math was never very good, but you know, I stuck with it and here I am sort of a mix. I love that mini rebellion story because, you know, for some people it would have crushed them, right? They're like, okay, forget this. I'm not going to do that art and design stuff. And when I see some of the projects that your studio does, it's, you do some great storytelling. There's some great visuals, great art in a field like healthcare when you're talking about some of these projects and it's such a unique blend that I haven't seen much out there in, in the space. So that's probably because of your professor telling you not to do that. What? That's, no, I, I think <laughs> there's something deficient in my brain that loves to get hammered. 
<laughs> like, you know, it's a intellectually bashed with a cudgel where I remember I, I, I made this, I went into a presentation. I thought I was prepared. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm talking about like sort of the specifics of design. And it just so happens Alan Kay was in the audience. It was a small, you know, a couple hundred people or something like that. And Alan Kay was in the audience and he's a pretty big forefather of computing and HCI, you know, another old white guy, but sharp as hell. And I'm grateful for what he's done for part of like GUIs and graphical user interfaces and all this kind of stuff. But he asked me this question in front of the whole audience about, hey, Johan, okay, I'm glad you're talking about this. This is a nice way of saying what the hell are you talking about? And he just, he asked me a simple question is, it should design, should interface stay the same? Anyway, so it's, it was just like, and and he been a life preserver for me, like he sort of uh, helped me answer it. But it was great because I got like hammered, like smacked down in that session in front of a whole massive crew. And I love that because then uh, I went that night back to my room and I recrafted a whole new story about healthcare and design. Mm. And so there's something really that I get off on when I get mm. hammered. Now, I don't want to do that every day. I don't want to get like busted <laughs> and bitches <laughs> in my psyche all the time. But maybe that's just me. I know it's just me. Tell me about one or two of your favorite projects at GoInvo, either currently or in the past couple of years. Oh God. It's my favorite project typically is the ones I'm working on now. <laughs> Cause like, Des- describe like, one. Can you describe one in, in detail? Well, okay. The own your health data act from Massachusetts, which we've talked about a little bit. That's my new favorite because I want to make pushing that into legislation. Whoa. I want to do that. What does that Massachusetts. mean? Own, own your own health data. Well, that's the idea where patients co-own or fully own every health data about, about themselves. And I want that to happen at the state level. I really want it to happen at the national level. Mm. So we are crafting two things right now, which should be uh, live by the 1st of September, is a graphic little novella, which spells out the problem and says, here are some possible ways to, here's some theses that can help solve the problem. And here's the policy. The the problem is that like, if I want access to, for my medical records, I have to fax a form to my doctor's office and wait a week for it to come back in paper form. Is that, is that right? Is that part well, of the yeah, problem? There are, there are lots of problems, which yeah. we live all the time. And so that requires a whole other tirade, but you have to, you know, the key thing is that you have to sort of say what the problem is. You have to then have a policy of how to solve that and other things. And then what are the actions to get there? And so we're trying to do that for the idea of patient data ownership in this graphic novella, but also have a side sort of white paper or light paper with, uh, that's referenced so that the, the academics, the analysts, the hospital wonks and rule makers can see that, okay, this is sort of backed up <laughs> with some lit. And then, and so that's just to get people over or into the hump of learning about it. Making the actual bill is the third part, which we're not at yet, because I need to gather probably at least a half dozen local congresswomen and senators from Massachusetts to work with me on this, which I've already started to corral. That is amazing. Is that going to be on your website soon? Yeah, it'll be at ownyourhealthdata.org. And that's out right now? Well, I have crappy drafts, you know, as part of the open source process, I let it all hang out there. So you can see our sketches of what the graphic novella are and of the early white paper. 
Amazing. You have such a, like this deep understanding of like how the mechanics of the healthcare system work and looking at the signals. And I'm curious to know if you had your own crystal ball, what sort of like devices or tech out there have the most promise to shape the future of healthcare? Oh, I still think we're way underutilizing just basic imaging on our phones. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you mean? I, well, you can, I, you probably saw the same demo like 15 years ago where you put your hand on a piece of glass and with different kinds of light, it looked at your blood work, right? Non-invasively. I mean, that's ancient. Well, mm. ancient, I mean, ancient because maybe it's only 15 years. That's not ancient, but um there are so many things that we're not using that are already here. Hell, we're not even using basic texting well enough. <laughs> That's the Jay Parkinson, your buddy's, you know, thing of just text me the damn, you know, yeah. basics. No, um, we was, can't even do that right. Yeah. I had this amazing interaction with a doctor. I uh, broke my knee or fractured part of my tibial tuberosity while surfing. I had knee pain for months and I'm, I'm the worst patient. I, I don't have a primary care doctor. I never seek medical care. I'm always diagnosing myself and not. You look in the mirror and uh, get your white jacket on. And say, okay, <laughs> it's not even that sophisticated. And then finally, I'm like, oh, my knee is killing me. And my buddy uh, Jeff Hayden, who's another ER doc, referred me to this guy, and we did everything over text. He said, "What's the problem? What's the issue going on?" Then he said, and then. Minutes later, he said, I ordered you an MRI of your knee. You can actually go this afternoon and get it. I was like, what are you talking about? It takes so long to order like this advanced imaging. You order it next week. As soon as it got done, he texted me and said, hey, here are the results. I'm having the specialist take a look at it. He got the specialist feedback and then told me, it's like, hey, your patella tendon is not damaged. You could go on and continue to exercise, but here are some rehab specialists that you may need to um, see. But 90% of our conversations were done over text. I spoke with him on the phone for maybe like five minutes mm -hmm. and I was flabbergasted by how much care could be delivered over basic messaging on my phone. Yeah. It, it is pretty staggering how, how quickly you can do that and how simple it is. It's just as a curiosity, how long did you wait to get your knee looked at? Oh, I waited about five months. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, di I diagnosed my own problem. I probably fractured it. It's not going to, it's non-operable, but then I had persistent pain over, over months. And I said, I should probably have someone take a look at it who is far smarter than me to make sure I'm not irreversibly damaging my knee because i like to I'm, I'm a pretty active guy i like to do a lot of yeah see pictures of, of you on your activities. bike and things you know i like to bike i like to surf and skateboard and stuff like that well you and but you also mentioned you have two good other good points in there which may be good to me is one we don't want to think about health so here you are uh yeah you're right doc, and you waited five months to get your knee, you know, poked at or texted at to figure out what to at, do next. Absolutely. Because the thought of actually going to the doctor's office, making an appointment, doing all this stuff, I just have zero tolerance of that. And my buddy who's a doctor knows that about me. So he arranged it for me. He's like, this guy is going to text you, right? He's going to, oh. he's going to communicate with you right now. I was like, 
and I didn't have a choice. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. And then it got done. It was amazing. Okay. There's the second part is that we who have different access to healthcare can get it on the spot. Yeah. And that is not normal either. That well, is, that's the other part. That's the yin to the yang. So, you know, that you just, you call, you texted, you had, you have access to amazing service it's, and then you got it. Yeah. Um, it's coming from a position of definitely privilege being in the healthcare system with good insurance and having this network. It doesn't scale. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing kind of uh, access, but it doesn't scale. And that's something I think as a country we have to put a ton of effort into getting much better access for human beings and having them freak out or worry about what's it going to cost every time. I mean, when you yeah. go to the NHS and go to just, oh, that was free. I have several colleagues who have now gone over there, not because of NHS, but, and then experiences, oh yeah, you just walk in, it's just part of care, part of living in a country. We should have the same thing where you set foot on US soil, you get freaking healthcare. Yeah. Uh, look at where we put our money. As a country, it's insane. I'm Jeff Sachs, I don't know if you know that cat, another yeah. white guy, had the an amazing economist. video like two weeks ago at the, I think the Africa summit and, and talked about our privilege as a country and how we are just basically screwing over the poor. Yeah. And we're seeing that with COVID right now, right? Yep. I'm about to get my third vaccine probably next month. I'll, I'll probably be first in line as a healthcare worker. And most of this world have not even gotten their first vaccine. And we'll, yeah. th it's not even known. There's not even a timeline for that in so many countries on this planet. Yeah. The fact that you can count less than a percent of our total budget against COVID as a country is going to international scene is a crime. Yeah. And then we have 50% of our country right now vaccinated <laughs> and the other half are, you know, we're, we're trying to get there. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> that, is, that was a very, uh, <laughs> my God, I need more I, icing it, like that in my it, life. It, it, it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go on a tirade about, about vaccines. That would take another uh, hour. Yuhan, where can people find out about your company and work? Where can, where can they find you? They can find us at, Goinvo.com, G-O-I-N-V-O.com. And so many of these projects that are open source, they're right there. You can like, download stuff, GitHub. All sorts of, yeah, all sorts of places, yeah. Or they can email me directly. I will actually try to get back to anyone who e emails me within three business hours. What? All right. You're gonna, you want to share your email then? Sure, of course. J-U-H-A-N at G-O- Invo.com, and uh, you know whether it's gibberish or not, you know I'll get back to you. And then you can also call me. My phone number and my email are all open. Amazing, love talking with you. I could talk with you for hours on end. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Bon. You can find Yuhan Sonin on Twitter at J S O N I N, or Instagram at J U H A N. S-O-N-I-N. That's at Yuhan Sonin. You can also reach out to Bon on Twitter or Instagram at Bonku on Twitter or at Dr. Bonku on Instagram. And don't forget to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Design Lab was produced by me, Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. Don't fret. If you miss Bon's buttery smooth voice this week, 
he'll be back next week, as long as he doesn't stay in the land of lobsters forever. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>